0: The Outlet The Talk of Wanaka
1: There's a huge amount about an expedition in the first place. It's got a beginning and a middle and an end. It's got a big challenge and of course Everest is the world's highest mountain. It's one of the many mountains that we guide people on every year but Everest is the most challenging in in many, many ways just the logistics around it and the planning and the and the processes that have to be in place to even get to the mountain, let alone climb the mountain.
0: Welcome to The Outlet. I'm your host Brent Harbour and in this podcast I talk to Guy Cotter. Now Guy's whole life has been spent in the mountains, in New Zealand, the Himalayas and many other mountain ranges around the world. He was introduced to the outdoors at an early age and his passion for the mountains eventually saw him focus on a career as a mountain guide where a skill saw him working alongside Rob Hall and Gary Ball when they established their Everest guiding company, Adventure Consultants. Guy has a book coming out next month called Everest Mountain Guide, the remarkable story of a Kiwi mountaineer. We talk about the writing of the book, challenges he has faced and his next adventure you're listening to the outlet
1: i really like the interviews
0: i like that it's easy to listen to while i'm at the gym
1: i like that it's local and all about this community the outlet
0: the talk of wanaka Let's check out a local event in Wanaka brought to you by Liquorland 3 Parks there for your next event with Unreal Deals. Techstars Startup Weekend is a 54-hour event where people come together to share ideas, form teams, build products and launch startups. It's on November 10th to 12th and is strictly limited to 50 spots. So don't miss out, sign up today. All the info and links can be found by clicking on the Things To Do button then events on your Wanaka app. Mount Everest reigns supreme as the highest point above sea level, straddling the border between Nepal and China. Guy Cotter has summited Everest five times and has turned his diaries into a book called Everest Mountain Guide, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer. We talk about what he's learned in all those adventures on Everest, the challenges, the beauty, and what he's working on next. G'day Guy, welcome to The Outlet. Yeah, thanks Fred. Uh, thanks for having me on board. Now your book, Everest Mountain Guy, comes out at the end of the month. So, what was your motivation to do the book
1: now? Uh, well, I think um, it's something that I've been writing for over thirty years. If you like, I'd, I'd kept diaries of all my expeditions to Everest. So, you know, where I first went there in nineteen ninety two, still find myself going there. I was there again this year, and through COVID, I had a bit of time on my hands. So, I figured, well, rather than do nothing, I'll just complete some projects that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and writing the book was one of them, and you know my motivation really was to try and give a little bit of a background of what goes on on Everest, because you know I think people are very interested in what happens on Everest, everyone's got an opinion about what happens on Everest, but if people aren't all aware of uh, all of the detail and all of the backstory and, and what it really is like on the mountain, I wanted to fill some of those gaps writing about thirty years of of activity, you know, here and there when I was on the mountain and not doing other expeditions is quite challenging because you have to leave a lot out in order to not make such a long book that, you know, everybody would be put to sleep forever. Um, So uh, yeah, there were some challenges with that, but I, I, I really tried to find a balance with just giving a, a bit of an idea of what, it, what it's really like to be there, working as a mountain guide, as opposed to a lot of what we've read, which is people have been there as... Climbers, clients, and so on. So that, that was my motivation. What is
0: the process like for you when you began writing the book? Because I mean, I I wouldn't know where to start when I'm trying to write a book.
1: Right. Well, the process was really going through all my diaries, which I took on every expedition, and and uh, then try and put that into a story in itself. And it was sometimes a little challenging in that when you get really busy or when stuff happens, you might find yourself not having written in the notebook for a while and. It's been an ongoing issue with my notebooks is when it comes to summertime, I've, I've been too busy to write anything and anything new. Writers is uh, retrospective anyway. But going through going through the notebooks and then fleshing it out and, uh, you know, I had a uh, little bit of support with doing just a little bit of a rough edit at the start, got it to the publisher who introduced an editor to me and I worked with the editor and, and that was as much about stripping content out because when you're writing anything in diary form some of it isn't really stuff you would write for other people to read it's more a dumping ground and sometimes just uh getting some of the nuts and bolts of of what's going on down there and it probably wouldn't be of much interest to a to a reader so going through the editing process it was very apparent that i had way too much content and then it was uh, notes from the editor saying, "Well, oh, you know, those 16 pages there, can you turn that into three paragraphs, please? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't always the easiest thing to do. but So there was a lot of rewriting along the way. There was not that much of it that was uh, text that I had originally written uh, without going through a rewriting process. So I really enjoyed that process. I think some people might find it frustrating, but I treat it as a learning experience. The editors know way more than I do about that sort of thing. And and then just trying to get me to to, to rewrite content. And but I'd find myself in a hotel room in Punta arenas at the bottom of South America between expeditions or Kathmandu or whatever, or in a base camp somewhere trying to rewrite a section and then getting it back. So it was it was kind of a disjointed process. It wasn't like I just sat down and could write eight hours a day. I was getting a maximum of about four hours at a time in before I'd have to move on to something else and get some exercise or something.
0: How do you balance that? Because you are a mountain guide, you're running a business, you're trying to put a a book together. It must have been really difficult at times.
1: Uh, It it certainly was, and it was was very disjointed. And that's why I say it took 30 years. I mean, I've probably actively been working on trying to write the story for the last 10 years and just get it into some sort of... state that I could actually get it to an editor so it was just but that's just sort of part of my life and I think people like me who are traveling a lot for different projects and expeditions and so on we just have to grasp life uh, when we have the opportunity to do so uh, including doing projects like this because of course there are all sorts of other projects that one is involved with like you mentioned you know work-wise let alone trying to catch up with your own life and friends and family and so on which is always a difficult thing to do when you're coming and going a lot but um, somehow I managed to find the time eventually and and uh,
0: glad I did So when you were putting the book together were there any specific experiences that you really wanted to make sure were included in the book?
1: Uh, yes, I think I wanted to uh, a lot of things went on in the, on expeditions prior to 1996 and I know a lot of people will know about what happened in 1996 with the passing of Rob Hall and Andy Harris and Doug Hanson Yusuko Namba Gottfisher you know that became very famous in the book Into Thin Air and I wanted to ensure that there was a preamble to that and that the build up to '96 showed that '96 wasn't just in isolation there were a lot of events every year that you're on the mountain and there were incidents that occurred in previous years, that definitely had an effect on what happened in 1996. Then I also wanted to focus on what happened after that, what it was like for me to take on the mantle of running venture Consultants, because of course it was owned by Rob Hall and Gary Ball prior to that, and sadly Gary died in 1993 on the mountain of the Himalayas, and, and, and Rob in 1996, and so it was a really big decision for me to make to carry on with the business and I actually had a choice of whether I could have just started again under my own name or whether I would stick with the adventure consultants label but I I did that because I you know wanted to show respect to my mentors you know Rob and Gary taught me you know a huge amount about high altitude guiding in the Himalayas very different from you know guiding anywhere else and you know I wanted to uh, carry on that story and that included working with the staff that we had and to see their livelihoods continue the Nepalese staff and the Sherpa staff and so on and then later on in the book I'm I'm focusing on other seasons that I'm there on the mountain and to talk about some of those events now there's only so many times that people will want to read about the beautiful sunrise and the lovely sunset and the nice things to go on an expedition you know I think you know, drama always is a lot more interesting to people. And there is a huge amount of drama on a peak like Everest every year. There's just no avoiding it, you know, happening around you often, sometimes to you. And there were some major events there. And one of them, of course, was the avalanche in 2014 that caused the deaths of uh, 16 Sherpa and the Kumbu Icefall. And then the in 2015, the, the avalanche, which killed something like 9,000 to 13,000 people. Then the earthquake and of course the avalanche and base camp that that occurred and the drama involved there which definitely impacted us and you know sadly we we lost six of our staff in in that event. But then to also wanted to include moving on and talk about you know the future, what the future of Everest is, how I perceive things can move forward into the future and to try and give a rounded View of of what's going on in Everest, rather than just the dramatic headlines we hear all the time, which are uh, unfortunately just a part of being involved with Everest. Is there a chapter or a
0: section in the book that really is close to your heart?
1: Well, I, I have to say that all of it is, <laughs> you know, the, and that was the thing about writing it. When I was going through the process of writing it, I had to revisit a lot of very dramatic events that have happened in the past, and you know we as human beings we tend to kind of deal with stuff and move on which i had done just by picking up the pieces and moving on it means you're focusing on the now rather than what's gone before even though everything that's gone before kind of helps formulate who you are and and how you approach things and how you deal with stuff but i suppose you know, 96 was, you know, very close to my heart, and that I was there, but not there, and that I was on another expedition alongside Everest that year and became involved. There was a lot of elements to that that I felt very strongly about because we'd, I'd have been through a bit of an event the year before that was sort of had a lot of the same components to it that we resolved, you know, in a, in a positive way. So, but again, I think all of it's close to my heart. No you know, the whole book and, and that whole part of my life that I've been so intrinsically involved for so long.
0: How has the role of an Everest guide evolved since you started in the early 90s? I mean, there must be some dramatic changes. As you say, that it's it's a dangerous and difficult place, right?
1: I think 96 was the events that occurred in 96 made all of the, the whole industry, which was very small at that time, stand up and uh, take note and for me having to then reassure potential clients that what had happened in the past wasn't going to happen again in that same way was a very difficult thing to do especially having to be able to impart that sense of confidence without undermining those who had gone before me and look to address shortcomings in the approach that uh, we might have had at that time and that was just because mountaineering was different. People who were our clients back then were a lot stronger and more capable and and experienced than they are now. So much has changed in the industry and now most of the industry is actually run by Nepalese operators rather than Western operators. We started the whole process of of bringing paying clients to to Everest and uh, a lot of that's been taken over by Nepalese operators and it's their country, it's their mountain, you know, it's a natural progression for for that to occur. There are still issues surrounding the approach that some of them might take. Uh, there are some very good Nepalese operators and there's some who are just bargain basement uh, cheap as just to get clients. And They get lots of clients who are usually the least capable and with the least support. So, you know, there are a lot of issues still going on on the mountain and, you know, we'd love to see those being uh, addressed. I think we could pretty well sort that out in a in a couple of mornings meetings and uh, if we were, it was up to us to make the changes, but it's not. It's something that's got to occur within Nepal and, and for, to be led and driven by them. But I, I think it'll take some time, but um, hopefully I'll provided a bit of a roadmap for them in the uh, conclusion of the book to consider moving forward. Uh, It's not like management of high mountain environments hasn't been addressed in other parts of the world and that could be applied to Everest. And what I would like to see is that they manage to evolve it into the pinnacle of a well-run mountain environment, both socially and environmentally so that it can benefit everyone and, and be seen as, uh, as a very well-run well and uh, well-managed environment.
0: Now, you've summited Everest five times, so what keeps drawing you back to the mountain?
1: Well, there's a, there's a huge amount about an expedition in the first place. It's got a beginning and a middle and an end. It's got a big challenge. And of course, Everest is the world's highest mountain. It's one of the many mountains that we guide people on every year, but Everest is the most challenging, and in, in many many ways, just the logistics around it, and the planning, and the and the processes that have to be in place to even get to the mountain, let alone climb the mountain. I, I really enjoy working collaboratively with with people, starting from you know the office staff being able to communicate with the potential clients, get the clients signed up, get them prepared through other objectives or what have you, to going to the mountain and working with the Nepalese staff, which we have a very good relationship with. And and that brings quite a lot of joy to me to be working with them in their environment. And then also the logistical and technical challenges of climbing the mountain. It's well beyond just being a mountaineer or just being a mountain guide. Where you have to have good strengths and, and management and leadership, and when it comes to it, the actually putting one foot in front of the other and climbing the mountain is the is the easy part. Because unless you've got all of those other components working perfectly well, then you know things can go wrong and you won't get to the summit. So uh, I, I like that the overall challenge of. Well, being there on that big mountain—it
0: must be so satisfying when you get people to the top there. And I mean, you've done it, and it must still be an incredible experience for you. But for other people, it must be amazing.
1: It, it absolutely is amazing, and I still remember back to my first time standing on the mountain—you know, on the summit and going, "Wow, this is this is amazing." I hadn't even thought about summiting until about twenty minutes before I stood on the, on the summit. Up until that point, you're still climbing the mountain. And it's not like there's a great epiphany when you do get there, because there's always the the stress of having to get back down, and knowledge that when you're at the summit, you're only halfway there. And so a lot of the sense of achievement is retrospective, is coming down from that mountain and walking away from it, and getting back home, and and being able to reflect on on what you've been through. It is something very very unique in the mountaineering world. Everest stands for a lot of things to all of us. It's the epitome of achievement and success uh, and so on. And within the mountaineering circles, you know, Everest is not seen as the the hardest mountain in the world or anything like it. But I think when you personally go and do it, you do really feel that uh, amazing sense of achievement. And to pass that on to the clients and to see them evolve through having got themselves into a position where they could uh, be capable of reaching the summit and then to be able to assist them to get to the summit we're not dragging them up there we're just guiding them showing them and and, and helping them and to do that in in good style is what I gain satisfaction from because you know I've seen people climb Everest in, in a terrible style and then they get rescued off camps on lower on the mountain and they have frostbite and they've got all these issues and they did it really really poorly and relied on a lot of you know, external assistance to getting them up and down. To me, that's not really a, an ascent. Uh, but to actually see people do it in good style and be able to facilitate that is what I gain achievement from.
0: So how has climbing influenced your outlook on life, Guy?
1: Well, it makes me appreciate life a heck of a lot because we've been in an environment where you see life lost. But it also helps me appreciate life from the perspective of challenging myself and learning from that. I think going to high altitude especially I think is like holding a big mirror up to yourself where you get to see your strengths and your weaknesses and you have to be objective about those and go yeah okay those are my strengths, okay I know I'm strong in that area, here's some areas that I need to work on and to be able to do that and then go through challenges and by going through challenges you actually learn a lot about yourself. Uh, People who don't challenge themselves never learn how what they really like when they're faced with adversity and to me that has been one of the benefits of uh, the hardship and and the challenges and, and if you like the tragedies as well has just been to be able to evolve myself and 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 learn where I can still improve and you know I think let alone the Physical aspect of it because you know, I love getting up and watching the sunrise as I'm climbing a mountain and see those views that you'll never see looking out over the plains of um, Nepal and into Tibet to see the likes of lightning storms going on, on below, well below you, where you're well above the, the cloud top and, and so on and so on and so on. And being able to assess your capabilities and be. Completely correct in your assessment is is also very satisfying. And a lot of people think that, you know, mountaineers run on this big ego, you know, which is, it might be true for some, but in reality, you have to be very, very realistic about your capabilities. You know, otherwise you'll get yourself in trouble. And if you think you're better than you are, then, you know, you're going to, you know, meet a sticky end. And so that's also satisfying is to be able to. Adequately assess what you're capable of, and also what you're not capable of, and be comfortable with that.
0: That's brilliant. So you've got the book coming out. You'll be busy promoting it.
1: Uh, so what other projects do you have on the horizon, guy? Other uh, projects. Uh, we're doing a bit of an office move into uh, in, in Wanaka in a, in a month or so. Planning lots of other expeditions, which are going on and one soon right now, but or uh, about to start, which I'm not uh, involved in because I would stay behind for the launching of this book. I'm going to Antarctica in December to lead another group on Mount Vincent, which is the highest peak in Antarctica, a place I, I love going. Uh, it's a really amazing part of the world. You know, and I, I'm one of those lucky people that has lots of great objectives and adventures to, to look forward to as part of my lifestyle and my and my work. And, you know, I, I know I'm one of the uh, fortunate ones in that respect, albeit recognising that uh, it's, it's one of the more challenging occupations you could ever dream up.
0: That sounds just amazing. The Antarctic one will be fantastic. How many people will you take with you, Guy?
1: I've got uh, four people with me on that trip, and we fly into the interior of Antarctica, and we're climbing a 4,800-metre mountain, Mount Vinson, and... Will uh, be experiencing the usual Antarctic conditions, which can be fierce. Um, and on the most benign summit day, I look forward to you know walking up to the summit when it's a it's a balmy minus thirty degrees, one of the warm days. So uh, it's an amazing part of the world to be in, and you know, always look forward to to going back there. So that's next on my agenda as far as uh, climbing objectives. So. You know, it's always good to have something on the horizon to aim for, something to focus on, something to train for, something to get yourself ready for, rather than, you know, not have anything to look forward.
0: To. And so, you'll be giving everybody in Antarctica a copy of the book to read on those balmy nights.
1: Uh, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I'll be able to carry that many books down there. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's going to be a little bit weighty, and every kilo counts. So. Hopefully, we can get those books to them before they go down.
0: Thank you so much for talking today. It's been absolutely great and all the very best for the launch of the book.
1: Thanks very much, Fred. The Outlet
0: Jobs Board. Here's a few of the jobs listed this week on the Wanaka app. Thanks to New World Three Parks for when it's your job to do the grocery shopping. Gallery 33 is looking for a motivated self starter to join their team in the role of gallery manager. There's diverse scope and variety in the role. It's a full-time permanent position, 40 hours a week, 9am to 5:30 pm Monday to Friday. Central Heating Solutions is looking for a plumber heating system's foreman leading hand. You'll be supervising, installing and maintaining in-floor systems, radiator systems, heat pump systems and gas and solid fuel systems and Bike Glendu is looking for hospitality front-of-house staff who are passionate about food and beverage to join their team at Velo Cafe and Beer Garden, Bike Glendu's on-site food and beverage establishment. These jobs and more can be found by clicking on the Jobs button on the navigation bar of your Wanaka app. Download the Wanaka app from the App Store or Google Play. Thanks for listening to The Outlet, your local interview and information podcast for Wanaka. Now, if you have a story or an interview you think should be featured on the Outlet podcast, get in touch by using the contact button on the navigation bar of your Wanaka app. The Outlet is produced and published by the Wanaka app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. All episodes of the Outlet are available in the podcast section of your Wanaka app and wherever you get your podcasts.